Fitness Pro Mentors community. This is Brandon, as you probably already know, and I am here with an incredible guest and friend and someone who's absolutely brilliant to talk about defining the last rep, Mr. Jacques H. Newell Taylor. Jacques, how you doing today, sir? I'm doing pretty well, thanks. Pretty well, yeah. thanks. Thanks for having me. How about you? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. I'm interested because nice. I've been trying to figure out which lab I should be designing exercises in, and I feel <laughs> like I found the right person to talk to about that. <laughs> that's, that's 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 well well done. Well done. <laughs> oh, cheesy man, cheesy. Hey, come um, along with being a dad. You got to come up with those dad jokes, you know? Oh my gosh, so many terrible dad jokes. I feel like I've been preparing mm. them and waiting mm. for Maxwell to be old enough so I can start mm. telling them. What happened to the what happened to the banana after it got sunburnt? Uh I don't know. You made some bread from it. I don't know. It peeled. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, okay. we're not you're, here you're for there. comedy. We're not here yeah, for yeah. comedy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> leading into today, I asked you, hey Jacques, what is it that you're excited to talk about? And I know there's one mm. thing that you've been really doing a lot of through I've seen with your Instagram and conversations we've had, and even some group classes you collaborated with with courses years ago. And I know mm. you've been playing with technology, rather mm. expensive, high-end scientific technology to learn more about muscles, contraction, some of the byproducts of those to figure out, you know, what are we really doing when we're doing some <laughs> of these exercises? And you said yeah. when you were talking about it that, hey, you don't need all these crazy expensive things to learn some new ways to do things better on the gym floor as a personal trainer. So I'm really excited to talk about that because I would love to spend a lot of money on EMGs, but you know, I think there's <laughs> maybe some more pragmatic ways to get started. So where do you think we should start? Well, you know, um, it's a really simple thing, really. And that is um, we spend a lot of time talking about, you know, how to warm up to exercise, you know, we spend a lot of time defining or deciding which exercise we're going to do first or second. And we even spend a lot of time figuring out, you know, how much load, you know, or the, or the path of motion, the right form. But when it comes to designing the very last rep, right, we usually blow that off a little bit. And here's what I mean by that. We say, well, we go to failure, right? That's, for, for for most goals that you're supposed to go to failure till you can't do it anymore. Yeah. Uh, whether you can't do, whether you say you're going to do eight and you can't do a ninth or whether you're doing a hundred and you can't do 101. Right. Or maybe somewhere between like 50 or 70, but, but for some reason we get stuck with this idea that we're going to failure. Right. Um, and then there's some, I know that there's some, 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 maybe some offshoots from there, but that typically becomes a big thing is we're going to stop when we get to, when we get to failure. And then some of our more um, thoughtful uh, colleagues might say, no, I stop when their form gets bad, right? When the form gets bad. So I wanted to really figure out how have we as professionals really started to think about when is the set over? When should it be over? You can think of it like this. If for some reason you really believed in your heart of hearts, and I'll leave it at belief for right now, <laughs> that going to failure is absolutely essential for this person's goal. But they are unable to go to failure because you notice that their form gets so bad that you call it, right? <laughs> you say the, the, the set's over, right? Your form just got so bad but I haven't gotten a failure. I know what your form got so bad. So now we got a problem. This person is never going to achieve their goal because they can't go to form failure because their 
perform it so bad, right? Then we got some stuff we got to do there. But I'm, I've always been curious, what's supposed to be magically happening inside of the body at the point of failure? It's a good question. And I'm actually really excited. Like you said a bunch of things just starting off. And I have like, <laughs> Sorry, a, yeah. no, because I got like a million questions because I, in a lot of the study groups I host, I, I feel like that this is a question that comes up often. Because when yeah. we start working in our, you know, very scientific analytical world, I find so many trainers get overwhelmed with, well, what is the right exercise? Mm. And how do I do this thing in the right way to get this response? And to me, it's extremely, it should be more simple. But then once you get past the simplicity of it, there's a, definitely another complex layer. We're creating adaptations in these people. And there's yes. only it, in fitness personal training land, if we make mm -hmm. it simple to start off to understand it hypertrophic mm -hmm. responses, strength, whatever you want to call that, endurance. If we start there, then I think it makes it easier to start figuring out the science of well, which direction do we want to go? Yeah, you hit it right on the head. So the, the, the problem is, as we have, I think, kind of uh, started to lay it out, is that for the variety of goals that people have, we typically have one default way of defining the last rep, and that is failure. Yeah. Right? And so what we have to first is start to think about, okay, if I have someone who I've said, this person's goal is to get stronger, then we say strong enough to do what? I just want to be able to sit down in a chair comfortably and get out of the chair comfortably. And I'd like to be able to sprint 30 yards with my, with my toddler grandkid. That's all I want to be able to do. Right. That's the kind of strength that I'm talking about. Okay. Now you, Mr. Exercise Professional, you can do all the charts and graphs and blah, 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 blah. But as long as I can do that stuff, we're good. So then I have to think to myself, okay, how do I, how do I create some type of evaluation for this individual for where they are right now? And no, I don't mean saying how fast can they run 30 uh, yards right now? No, no, no. They told you they can't do it. It's not pretty. Let's not start there. Right. Yep. There's other stuff we can look at. What are some of the things I need to look at first of all? And then I can start to think about, okay, so if I'm trying to first get this person to recruit the maximal number of motor units they've, that they've got in their, in, in their tissues. That's the first thing that I need to learn how to do, teach them how to do. What does that exercise need to look like? Right. And the reason why I bring up this idea of motor units, because I, Hey, I, I took a, I took them for granted. I didn't really fully appreciate them, but what this EMG stuff, this surface electromyography stuff helped me to appreciate is how the body recruits motor units differently over time i was like wait a minute so this is one of the first adaptations that we see in here now what does it take to create this adaptation does it create does it does it require failure nope not even close not even close so we were able to observe changes in in recruitment strategies using sub-maximal loads with clients and using and going to to levels of effort that were nowhere near failure. So if we're starting to think about strength, a component of strength is recruiting all of the motor units that you've got, or at least the vast majority of them, in order to start to to to, to perform some of these motions, then we can think about sub-maximal loads in helping people to develop that that skill, that ability. Right. So we can design that last repetition outside of go until you can't do anymore interesting so yeah 
So for trying to recruit, so if our initial goal, if we're trying to recruit as many motor units as possible, you found that through the surface EMG that using mm. submaximal loads was the, was that the most efficient way to do that? No, not the most efficient way. Okay. Uh, simply another way, right? Okay. So, so, so what we typically get stuck on is exercise needs to be this really uncomfortable um, experience. You have to get uncomfortable if you want to get any better. That's, that is the, the dogma out there. Right. Yeah. And, and as soon as I say this, then, then if there's an Olympic level, you know, athlete out there, they're going, well, dude, I'm afraid that's absolutely necessary. And I would say for you, sir, or madam, that might be true, right? There are certain, at certain phases, you might need some sort of extraordinary effort. But for a lot of people, for where they are, they don't need extraordinary effort. They just need effort. <laughs> right. Yeah. And we get to to come up with different effort scales to allow people to go, yeah, this is definitely a challenge. I couldn't do this all day, but I can do this for the next 30 to 40 seconds. I can do that. So let me know if this makes sense, because I think it's easy because we both we've kind of got to do different demographics. You and I, and I would put mm. you at a different level than me because uh, you're just shredded and awesome looking. Um, we both kind of focused on this, like, in my opinion, hypertrophy, composition, bodybuilding-esque style training. Um, if you're okay with it, can we talk both about like optimizing for hypertrophy and like the big fitnessy bodybuilding stuff and lateral to that, maybe talk about sensitive demographics that probably yes. you and I spend most of our time. Is it okay if we talk about both? Absolutely. We can talk. And I also want to throw another one in there that, that I am, um, working a lot with now and am in some ways moving toward and that is i'll call them um things that you do for longer periods of time that when you get done with them you might not be completely trashed okay is that or or things you... that you might do for a long period of time that in order to complete it you will be completely trashed do you mean like like someone doing a marathon Boston style thing where they're going to rerun it could be a marathon. It could be a triathlon. It could be summiting, you know, some sort of, you know, crazy, you know, mountain. It could be doing like, you know, I don't know, uh, 14 peaks in a day or something like that, where you're really pushing your body. Okay. Uh, you might be on a, uh, doing some sort of like hundred mile bike ride. Okay. You know I mean? So, so things that, um, that require a completely different way of thinking about training. <laughs> Like almost like can cardio make your fill in the blank bigger? <laughs> can spinning make your fill in the blank bigger? <laughs> ooh, 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 don't fill in a, not, not a, a, yeah, yeah. Calves, calves, that's what calves. Of course. Okay. Yeah. So we've got these, so sensitive demographics, yes. <laughs> sub, sub, <laughs> suboptimal, like sub loads seem to do a pretty, I mean, you found to be a, an interesting way to start working on this increasing motor units. Now, mm -hmm. um, for say someone like myself and perhaps some of these people who are watching right now, mm -hmm. we have a lot of us, I believe in this fitness pro mentors group have sensitive demographics. We're working with okay. these people. If we're working with sensitive demographics, um, how are you defining without technology, what a submaximal slash appropriate load is uh, mm -hmm. for someone? Okay. That's a great question. Um, so what I often rely on is um, uh, their feedback about, say doing things like standing up, sitting down and me watching them do that. Um, and, and their current body weight. Right. So that'll just kind of give me a ballpark idea of this is the mass that this person is used to 
managing on their legs, right? Yeah. So when I come over to this machine, if I know my machine well enough, I've used my dynamometer to see what is this machine really giving me when I throw it on it at a hundred, right? Yeah. I know it says a hundred, but is a hundred what? <laughs> is it just a hundred on the stack? But the thing when, by the time I shove it on it, it's 150 or is it 60? You see what I mean? Like, so I need to, I need to understand that. I need to understand what's going on with my machine. And then I can say, okay, this load is less than what they typically move around, but we're going to be doing it at, at, at such a, um, at such volume that it'll become um, stimulating, right? They will definitely find it to be challenging. And then I use that, that Macmillan Purvis scale and nobody wants to take credit for it, but they both worked on it and blah, blah, blah. So scale of one to five, one is easy, easy. I could do this all day. I say easy, easy as pie. Five is I cannot do another rep, right? Yep. And for what we found is that people doing it at a three was enough to start to get a shift in the way that they're recruiting these motor units. Okay. So, and I guess it should be a little bit more specific. Um, when you have someone who is deconditioned, untrained, doesn't use a mu muscle groups a lot, they tend to recruit um, uh, their motor units, their available groupings of motor units very inefficiently. They'll recruit all the small guys first. And once those small guys start to fatigue, then they'll start to recruit this, the, the next larger motor unit and so on and so forth. When people, as people train, what they do is they recruit a little bit lower numbers of the whole range of motor units, right? Okay. It's a really smart thing that your nervous system does. It doesn't just go, let's go with the little guys first. It goes, no, instead of using five little guys, let's use one little guy, two little guys and one medium guy, right? And we'll get the same amount of force, but we won't have as much stress being placed on just a couple of motor units, right? Interesting. So it is literally distributing the load throughout more tissue, right? So as you get as your neuromuscular system gets more and more efficient, it is using a larger range of motor units right off the bat, right off the top. Not all of them. It's not saying everybody jump in there all at once, but it's just saying instead of just using all those little guys, let's use a few little guys, a few middle guys, and maybe a big dude if, if we can get something out of them that's that overkill. So with these deconditioned people, I've had a bias that I'm happy to have get smashed in the face, and I'd love to know what you think. If someone is deconditioned and they're using, they have this kind of like very, very cool orchestration of motor unit size recruitment to make it as efficient as possible, but we want to try and get them to use as much and as many as possible together. And we've discovered, you've discovered that a submaximal load of three is a great way to get started. They're getting some adaptations. They don't need to push themselves much harder than that. My bias has been for those people to try and increase the frequency of when they do that stimulation even perhaps once or twice, a couple times a day, because they are not going to the place where they're creating too much fatigue and too much stress. And I, I see have seen it as more of a motor learning, learning how to do it style thing rather okay. than a local mechanical thing. Is that completely so, crazy? <clears throat> not completely crazy, but it depends on what you're having them do. Right. right? So here's what we have, here's the other part we have to start to think about is as we as we challenge these tissues, what, how are these tissues challenged? So if someone is going to a three, it is most likely that they're not going to have uh, 
any kind of damage being done in that tissue, right? Yeah. They're going to be the, 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 the energy, the, the, the energy stores might be um, used a little bit, right? Um, there might be some, yeah, some of the byproducts of, uh, of uh, cellular metabolism might be like hanging out. They might have to clear some of that out, right? Um, and the only time that we typically see some type of, um, I don't know, soreness at all is if we're doing these eccentric contractions in the lengthened like range of that tissue's motion. That's typically where we start to get some soreness. And that can that typically doesn't happen unless you're really starting to get after it. So I, I would tend to agree that that it is it is um hmm. it, it's not uh I don't have any I, I don't I don't see any risk in having people do that several times a day. The only risk would be if they are in any way um not really enjoying the experience of course you know what i mean yeah. so like they, there has to be buy-in on their side as opposed to oh crap i got to do this thing this stupid thing that brandon wants me to do yeah. right right, right. <clears throat> we can talk about that a different day of like what what happens when people don't have buy-in and then now it's just a pain in the butt and they're just kind of doing it right why is it that sometimes sometimes in those cases um we're not getting the we don't see the the adaptations that we'd expect well, and I know that you and I, and when we did the Minds on Muscle, Muscle episode with Glenn, where Glenn and I both mm -hmm. interviewed, we talked about that. Um, and that was such still a surprising thing to me. It makes sense, yeah. but people's relationship with the thing they're doing, the exercise, uh, definitely dramatically, you were talking about how it changed the outcome. Um, so yes, I would love to talk yes. more about that for sure. Yes, yes. So, okay. Can I, I want to shift gears because I'm biased yep. and I want to see if I can get something for my training when I work out tomorrow. Um, yeah. <laughs> on the defining the last rep for someone who's trying to get like a hypertrophic response. Yes. I think that's such an, an interesting thing because I mean, you said the form thing, uh, like how someone is in which position they are in, um, are they lose is the piece that shouldn't be moving, moving or the thing that's moving, not moving the way they want to. And okay. then when I think of failure also, I mean, there are so many different modes of contraction, yeah. right? So like, is it that concentric fatigue is the definition of, I can't move it anymore in this specific profile, oh, therefore, boom. Or is it that now isometrically, I can't stay it. I'm forced into an eccentric. Is that it? And yeah. so, I don't know. I mean, with can, talking about the modes and then the form thing for someone who's trying to grow as much muscle as possible, I'd love to hear your yeah. perspective and wisdom around that. So let's talk about this. So let's say that you, you are a beast and you are, you are, your form is great. Nothing's getting wiggly. You know, you're holding it down and you have to make a decision yeah. is failure when I can't push it back up or when I can't lower it back down or is it when I slow down or is it when I speed up? We got all these things that can think about because, because here's a deal. Again, we have to start to, and, and I, I couldn't, these used to be just like, Hmm, that's nice to think about. You know, those are different. Those are different. Which is better? I don't know. And you can't do a study on it. You know why? Because one person's a version of, well, you slow down might not be another's. And another person's saying, I didn't fail yet. You know, those guys who are like, I didn't fail yet. Get off me. Get off me. And they're pushing it back up. And sure enough, they're doing it. They're just going so ridiculously slow, right? We don't count that as failure. I don't know. Maybe we should. I don't know. But here's the thing. 
if you were to take these uh, little Moxie sensors, okay, which aren't the most expensive things in the world, but they are, they are kind of pricey. But what they, what they tell you is they give you an idea of the amount of blood that is in the tissue. And they also give you an idea or, or they, not an idea. They tell you also how much oxygen is in that tissue. And as we're watching a muscle do its thing, do its contracting, whether it's iso isoangular, meaning the same, same length-ish, um, or it's concentric or eccentric, what we see is as soon as the muscle starts to work, the saturation of, of oxygen starts to go down immediately, immediately, right off the bat. And at some point, the amount of blood that's in the tissue starts to go up, right? Meaning for some reason, the blood can no longer escape that tissue. There's enough tension in the tissue that blood can't go out the other side. And then at another point, there's so much tension in the tissue that blood can't even get in, right? And it seems to be that at that moment, when you have that occlusion, right? In other words, blood can't go out, blood can't get back in, and the rate of oxygen utilization in that tissue is going up. In other words, the amount of oxygen in the tissue is going down. It's at that point where we have a we have the opportunity to have a hypertrophic, hypertrophic stimulus. So the question becomes, does that happen on a concentric contraction, on an eccentric contraction, or on an isoangular contraction? And at what effort level does it have to be failure? And the answer is, it happens in all three of those different parts of the contraction phase, and you do not have to be at failure. As a matter of fact, it seems to be, we, and this is, this is where it gets a little bit like, little less um, precise, is that without that kind of precise monitoring, when you, if you establish a pace of doing your, let's say it's a bench press, right? And you have your, your pace that you're going. When you start to slow down, that is typically where you are starting to get into an occluded situation where not only do you have what we call a venous occlusion, but you have an arterial occlusion. So you're not getting any blood, any more blood getting into that tissue. So your muscles going, I'm using only what I've got in here. I'm not getting any more fresh oxygen in. And once I use all, all the stuff up in here, it's over. Oh my goodness, Brandon, do you just realize I just said that this over when you run out of oxygen? But wait a minute, I thought this was anaerobic. Holy crap, that's a whole nother subject. But you get that there's something else that's going on in here, right? Everything that you do, you are always, 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 always using oxygen as an energy substrate. And when that's over, everything's over. Right. You don't get to do anything anaerobic after that. <clears throat> that's another conversation, but that's that's the reality of what's what's going on on the inside. And to go back to the main point, when you start to slow your reps down, so you're going at a nice little pace as you start to slow down, that is the point where you're typically getting that kind of occlusion. So you're not getting any more oxygen in. So you can't produce the energy that you need to keep up with the power that you are that you are just uh, putting out. So Jacques, I want to clarify one thing that you said, and I can actually now rephrase it now that we had our little technical difficulty and come out of it because I stumbled my through my words. Um, what I thought I heard you say, and I want to make sure I understand this, is that there's um, there's an, an internal an internal occlusion that happens at a certain point of the exercise, in which after that occlusion occurs uh, internally, um, that that's kind of the a uh, great environment to allow hypertrophy to happen. Uh, is that fair to say? 
it, it is the environment that, that is one of the circumstances that, that seems to be required to stimulate hypertrophy. Interesting. This type of occlusion. Okay. And I'm, and I want to emphasize that it is one of the things because one of the things that uh, people mistook in the literature about, you know, those, that occlusion training stuff, just slap that on and you'll get bigger. Yeah. Well, if it was as easy as that, we'd all just slap on some occlusion bracelets and just sit around and eat Twinkies all day and just, you know, watch our hearts would like beat like crazy. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not just about the occlusion, but it is the tension that is required to generate in the muscle that creates the occlusion that then that then stimulates this hypertrophic response. Right. That's crazy. That's cool. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, and you mentioned the literature, which is perfect because um, we've got Mr. McMillan watching, which is super awesome. And uh, he said, cool. he said, this is awesome. Um, he would love to see the research around this stuff. If you're open to it after. Yeah. Cool with you. So please. 100%. Yeah. And yes. uh, anything you're willing to share would be awesome. And then just something we were talking about earlier, you're talking about the peck scale. Uh, McMillan referred to himself in the third person, which is super fun. But he said the peck scale was Tom Purvis's idea and McMillan's design. Charlie yeah. McMillan is attempting to validate it in his dissertation. And yes, I'm commenting in a third person. So Charlie, love having you here for sure. Yeah, I'd love to see this research too. I, uh, yes. I feel outside of 100% of my wheelhouse because it sounds like such a cool idea. Yes, um, I'll, I'll and I'll share with you the cat who um, really, I think, can talk about this far more eloquently than I can. His name is Evan Pycon. Yes, you recommended him and I checked out some of his stuff. I don't understand it all yet. That's the next phase of my learning for sure. It's it, it, the thing when you listen to a PyCan talk is like, you know, just have your finger over pause so you can pause, rewind and listen to that again. Pause, rewind, listen to it again because he talks fast and he uses a script. And so it's just like he just goes. OK, that's awesome. Um, yeah. I have two questions on the hypertrophy thing, and then I'd love to talk more about these endurance athletes at that school. Mm -hmm. On the bodybuilding thing. Um, the one thing that I have experimented with, and I just kind of, you know, I'm selfishly taking some time here, but I think this will be kind of fun is that I've organized a few exercises in a row where mechanically like perform what I would call a mechanical drop set, so to speak, where I do two or three exercises in a row. And I try to continue in a way that allows me to perform them, so to speak, consecutively for the same muscle group and not stop moving so to speak so i'm still able to perform concentric and have some control so like a perfect example would be doing a chest fly where the cable angle is increasing into my shortened position and it's very light at the end or sorry heavy at the start position light at the inside and then i'll move so it's uh lightest at the end is heaviest in the middle and i won't be able to achieve a full approximation but i can still continue the set and then going over to something like a flat barbell bench press where it's lightest at the toppiest and heaviest at the bottom and and that organization lets me really challenge myself and and continue pushing and in some cases i'll take that exact same extended set idea and do on a kaiser machine isometrics and forced eccentrics and really like try to decimate myself i'm wondering once we get to that internal occluded state is that efficient use of my time and beating up my muscular system or is that inefficient and actually decreasing my ability to recover and extending when I can train again next? I, I, I don't know that, that there's a, a real simple answer to that. Cause there are a couple of things that came to me is that um, when you say not efficient use, meaning are you thinking to yourself, I don't have time to do all this. And if I could get what I need and not have to do all this stuff, I would. Or are you, are you enjoying yourself geeking out on being able to create these different resistance profiles so you can go from thing to thing to thing? I love it. But for me, I'm, I'm always thinking about, well, how do I mean, like every probably person who likes to grow muscle, 
How do yeah. I put the most muscle in my body possible? So I experiment to myself and think, how does this translate to my client demographic? Yeah, I, I would, I would want to use some sort of either, I'd want to use some sort of measurement device, like one of these Moxie sensors. I want to get that on you and say, okay, at what point, you, there might be certain exercises that you do where you get no, none of this occlusion stuff happening. All you have are what we call venous occlusion. So we just see the blood piling up, piling up, piling up, right? But we don't get any of the venous stuff where it starts to flatten out, right? Or we might even see some exercises where you think that you're getting a lot of tension in that tissue, but you're actually getting tension in some tissues that are next door, right? Which is the so, next question. I'm excited. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so the the other thing that that becomes really interesting with these exercises is sometimes what we feel is not just the real deal. It's not really, it's not a good representation of really what is being challenged within the body. So how does, that's a great thing you just said. How does someone who's a trainer listening to this and or an mm. exerciser with some knowledge reconcile that last sentence? Cause that's a key big thing, right? The thing that you're feeling may not be an accurate representation of what's happening. And I think that that's, it reminds me of a video I saw you post on Instagram a while ago, and I commented in a previous episode with you, but I think it's really important. I believe you were mm. doing front raises and yeah. you had some either yeah. surface EMG or Moxie. I can't remember, but you had this cascade happen where it was clearly showing that the shoulder muscles you were measuring were the yeah. prime performers at the beginning. And then as they fatigued, it switched over to, I believe, biceps or another series of tissue. Yeah. And so without that tech, I mean, there's obviously a diminishing point of return for this, the shoulder muscles, um, but how do you know? Without that tech, I'm not sure. That's one thing uh, in that case in particular. But when you're talking about like the sensations in other spots, you got to go the old school way. And that is, what's my hypothesis? If I do this exercise, then this is going to get bigger, right? Yeah. And I'm going to give myself this much time to do the measurement. And that's an arbitrary amount of time because... I don't know how long it takes for you to build a bigger whatever, right? But I'm going to give it a certain amount of time. And we're going to say, if we do these things and we eat our food and we take our, I mean, and we take our supplements, <clears throat> then, right. <laughs> then, then everything's going to grow appropriately, right? Right, of course. So then we have to, I think that's the the fairest way is that how do we come up with some measurement that is going to allow us to to know whether it's, whether, whether what we're hypothesizing is happening or not outside of having this technology. But, but, but to me, that was, that was the big aha was that sometimes I actually, I could actually feel that difference, but I just thought that was part of failure. Right. Right. When I no longer felt the, the intensity here, but I felt it more on my bicep and you just kind of keep going because you haven't gotten to, I can still lift my arm up. Right. I can still do this. So I'm going to failure of moving the arm as opposed to failure of the stuff that I want to, to do the most of the most, do most of the moving, right? Failing. So there's that. <laughs> it's so interesting because I love, I love the idea of like, what is the last rep? Because if I go on the gym floor right now and I try to bicep curl a 65 pound dumbbell, mm. I could budget forward three inches and it come back. And it may not necessarily, I could call that the last rep and the first rep. But if I grab a 10 pound dumbbell, I could do a hundred reps. And then all of a sudden my ability to go through a joint range of motion concentrically will fatigue at a hundred. And then if I go eccentrically and isometrically, whatever it may be, it's so it's, I just find it so interesting to be like, well, how do you know you failed? How do you know you're tired? And not, and this is more just like a, yeah, I just sure, think it's sure. fascinating. It's sure. just so, it's so interesting and confusing yeah. at the same time. 
yeah 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 so i i think what what is a um and it's interesting thing to explore is how do you come up with a way of designing that last repetition that may not involve the, the generic term of failure but something that is a lot more specific right something that's a lot more specific and not only in terms of the stimulation that we want but what are some of the things we might not want right you alluded to earlier that this this idea that we want to be able to push as hard as we can but we want to make sure that our recovery isn't seven day, seven or 10 days that we can actually get after it sooner. Yeah. And one of the things that, uh, speaking of, of, uh, Charlie that he turned me on to years ago is this guy named Ken Nosaka and some of the research that he did around when do we really start to have some of that, that, um, damage to the tissue that we associate with, uh, losing joint range of motion, um, and, um, um, the tissue damage that, that, that used to be associated with, um, with hypertrophy training and all the, his research led us to this idea that it happens typically in that lengthened third of the range of motion for that tissue. That as we go through these eccentric contractions out there, that's when people start to get into trouble. Right. And we can start to think about some of the exercises where, where do people typically go? Oh man, that really got my bicep preacher curls. Right. Because right. we're there and we have no, con we're losing control. It's starting to get into that fully extended elbow position. Yeah. Yeah. And if we can get something where it's way, way behind us, and we're getting dropped back there. We like it even more because we're even more tore up. Right. So we can start to think about some of the things that people typically associate with this delayed onset kind of soreness. And they, a lot of them are in ranges of motion where that tissue is lengthened and we're starting to lose that control. Or we're starting like, or we're starting to catch ourselves in that lengthened position. Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense when I'm thinking about the stuff that really hurts me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. really interesting. So, so we can start to think about, you know, um, I'm going to define the last rep when as, I'm, as I've designed this and I want this person to really slowly go through this last um, third of the range of motion, maybe as they're coming back to the, the beginning point, as I see them start to accelerate and slow down in, in a shorter amount of space, I can say, ooh, you know what, maybe it's over now because you are no longer able to take some time to decelerate. You're trying to come up with all the deceleration in one little tiny space. And for you, you told me, Jacques, I don't, no matter what, I do not like to feel sore. I hate it. I won't, I won't, I don't want to do it. I want to get stronger, but I don't want to feel sore. So then we might have to prioritize that control and point it out to them. So let's take these endurance athletes now. Okay. Right? We've got these bodybuilders yeah. who are jacked, taking their supplements. We've got these sensitive people that are all, we have to customize it for each one. It's a little bit different. And there's a, a whole cool process of, we can explore there. Now mm. for endurance athletes, I've been thinking about this a lot more lately because, because of Evan Pycon and um, Peter Atea and more people I'm reading about just longevity research and learning from more of the mainstream folk. I'm realizing how gigantic of a whole cardiovascular health is on the whole for general demographics, how it affects all of these fitness goals, but also how do you get to that upper echelon of conditioning? And, and, and you know what's so interesting? I, I mean, I got to admit that, you know, when I was in the middle of the whole, you know, um, bodybuilding thing, I, because I had, I already had a, um, an interest and a, and a commitment to, um, to I'll call it like mountain running and stuff like that. I couldn't appreciate how much that was doing for me 
on the other side. Right. I, I just had no, I had no appreciation for it, but I'm sorry. And so I, and I'm kind of spaced on, on your, on your original like question no, there, but, but no problem. No, I, yeah. I, and I think, and I think it's that, that last point that you're making, I think is a really interesting shift for me as well. Uh, one of my original mentors who would go back on this now, 100% would say cardio, that stuff over there. You don't need to do that. You're not going to lose your body fat. And I think that that was kind of like a colloquial personal trainer coach thing 15 years ago of, you know, everyone stuck on the cardio machines. We got to get them over to the resistance machines, but Right, right. How terrible is it if you have the skeletal muscle adaptation that you're going for and the prerequisite of that exercise is being able to have a specific anaerobic capacity. And if you don't have that anaerobic capacity, like squatting 10 times, you lose your breath on the sixth, you might be completely losing out on the adaptations that you're looking for because you don't have the prerequisite conditioning to even get to the spot you need to to perform 10 reps of a, an exercise. And that's on the low level end. One thing I'd love to ask you really is, in your opinion, with how much you've been studying the neuromuscular side of things, how important is anaerobic and aerobic conditioning and how much has that paradigm shift been the last few years compared to a decade ago? Um, hmm. I, I, I still think that um, we still haven't completely um, um, fleshed out how much that has collapsed we still haven't come to terms with how much this idea of anaerobic exercise and aerobic exercise how that has really collapsed as we started as, as our powers of observation have increased right so that I, I think that's that's the big part that's a big part um that conversation just has to has to be had uh how do we how now that we understand that the chart that is in most of the books that are out there about the first part of an exercise being you know anaerobic and the next part being aerobic and if that 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 chart that this time scale is all off if that's the reality then that shifts how we think about what happens on a spinning bike for one individual who sits down and three months later, their legs look like, oh my God. And another person gets on and no, no, no big differences. And they both go to the same spin class and they both sweat so hard that you're like, that's gross, right? What's the, what's the difference? And I don't mean just genetics. I'm not just talking about that, but what is the difference in how their bodies are managing the power that they're generating. How are they coming up with it? And again, I'm alluding to this idea that there are some people that because of their mechanics, because perhaps of their genetics, they have a different response in terms of how blood is, is um, uh, distributed to the tissue, how their system manages it. Are there short um, times of this uh, of this arterial occlusion that I was speaking speaking of early, earlier, or does their body not do that at all? It's just short, short bouts of this vertebral uh, vertebral of of the um, uh, venous occlusion. And I know that sounds I haven't explained that very well. No, um, it's it's super interesting though because and I think that 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 example you gave up of of the spin bike person is a great example because mm -hmm. I mean I've worked with 
a lot of people. There's one gentleman I can think in particular who got spin biking and he's long distance riding. He came and saw me a few days ago to check in after a little time. And his legs are like, he's not bodybuilding, but his legs are like, like enormous and, and, and shredded and jacked. While I know other people who've been doing the exact same spin biking at a very high level for quite mm -hmm. a long time. And I would say that the muscular adaptations, I haven't seen any of those changes, but they can still go for an hour. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if we started that conversation, just in your opinion with the top layer of how you're thinking about this so far, mm -hmm. why, why do those two things happen? Like, how does someone do the exact same stimulus and get such dramatic changes? Because I would be biased to think that it would just be one particular adaptation. But anecdotally, like you, I've seen both. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I really think it comes down to um, uh, this, this um, the orchestration of tension that leads to uh, different fluid dynamics within the muscles. And as a result of those, of those fluid dynamics, you either have a, a, um, a stimulation towards hypertrophy and a push towards uh, more, um, what, what do you call it when you, when you make more mitochondria, uh, mitochondriogenesis or something like that, some fancy word like that. That right? sounds like it works. I like um, it. Or, or uh, no hyper, very little, very little hypertrophy response, and I think it has to do with um, the way they are orchestrating tension that either yeah leads to venous and arterial occlusion or maybe just venous occlusion. I have to say that this la this conversation has made me reframe <laughs> how mm. I think about a lot of this last rep stuff, and I'm so mm. grateful for it. Um, oh, my pleasure. Hey, can I throw out just a couple of things about the last last rep stuff? Because please. That, yeah, because I, I think I think of um, a couple of things just to consider is, um, and I have a um, like a, a chart that I use where, when we get to that, when we're I'll discuss this with my client is how are we going to design this last repetition? We can design it based around the sensation, what it feels like. Are you still feeling it in that muscle, or has it somehow changed? Has the sensation changed? Um, I'm not necessarily recommending this, but another one can be, does it hurt now, right? Are you starting to feel a little bit of, of you know, pain in this muscle? Um, another one can be effort. We talked about effort. Uh, do we want to go to, you feel like you cannot do another repetition, whether it's a shoving up or the lowering down or holding it in one spot. Um, we can talk about the path of motion. Once you start to deviate from this path of motion, it's over. We can talk about uh, the rate of motion. We can say, listen, there's a part where you're going to start to get tired and as a result, you're going to try to speed it up because you'll realize if you speed it up, you can use a little bit of the inertia of this thing moving back and forth. And we don't want to see that. And I'll give you one warning. Don't speed it up. And if you can come back to your main to your regular pace, we can keep going. Or if you slow it down, because, uh, again, as you start to slow down, that is a pretty darn good indication that you are getting you are approaching that last rep. Right. You're approaching it. And it doesn't seem like you have to go all the way that far to get these hypertrophy stimuli, okay? Um, so failure can be this, this thing that, that we talk about, but we've got all these other things that we can really start to design into this last repetition that, that where, where um, failure in the general sense is, um, I'll say a part of it, right? Failure to maintain the path of motion, failure to, um, to maintain your rate of motion, but it's not just failure, I failed. Does that make sense? Yeah. So coming back to like our real demographics, like real people with all those different mm -hmm. variables, when you enter into an exercise 
situation and you're going to have someone do a movement, whatever it is, do you typically have like two layers of failure? Do you have like that you're thinking about all these different variables, but not like right at the top of your mind, you're just aware that all the things can happen. And if their knee deviates out and they can't correct it, you'll call it. That's the end of it. Or do you go in or perhaps both? Do you go in and say, Hey, okay, so we're going to do this. And this exercise is tempo focused. And once we start seeing the tempo decrease or increase, then that's when we're going to call it. Do you kind of have, yeah, it'll be a conversation like that. Um, so, uh, and again, this is all dependent on their goal. All right. Yeah. So if I'm using a, a tempo dependent thing, then I would say, look, here's, I want you to establish your tempo. And if I see you speed up, I'm going to say, Hey, Hey, now, right. Yeah. I want you to slow back down. Right. Or if I see you start to slow down too much, I'm going to ask you, it looks like you're slowing down. Do you think you can maintain that pace? Then we go, yeah, I can. And if you've got some Kaiser equipment, what's nice about it is that there'll be a little bit of, there's a power output on it. Right. So when, once they start going, you see what their peak power is. And then if you're seeing that, that it always says 100% for each rep, and then it'll drop into the 90s. And then once it drops into the mid 80s, you know that they're starting to slow down. And I can say, hey, look, looks like your power starting to slow down. And they might go, oh, let me pick it up. They get back up into the 90s again. We're good. If I see them spike it past 100, then I know that now they're starting to go faster. And maybe they're trying to, see what I mean? So it is, you, we can use technology if you have that that type of technology, or you can use the old like eyeball test of 1001, 1002, you know, counting out, counting back in. Charlie McMillan came here and he brought the metronome and uh, I never thought of yeah. using a metronome, even though I live off a metronome <laughs> and yeah. it was, I didn't realize how much torture it was like five seconds on metronome time is awful feeling. <laughs> but once you have that metric, you really realize like where yes. you are uh, yes. changes a lot. Yes. Yes. So what I think is so um, cool about things like metronomes and bringing people's attention to what they're doing is we are providing an experience that is opposite of what they do typically on their own when they're doing everything they can to distract themselves from what they're doing, right? When they're on their own, they got their, you know, their music going and they're doing everything they can just to get their weight and just, and they're thinking about working all that stuff. But when we have things like metronomes, when we have things like, well, I'm going to ask you to count, or we have things like, I want you to pay attention to your power. We are drawing their attention to something and asking them to hold it there, which becomes a really important skill. It becomes a really important skill. And I want you to think about some of the other things that, um, where, uh, oh, geez, I just kicked the camera, where we ask people to place their minds on one thing. Can you think of anything like that? We ask somebody, you know, put your mind on one thing. Oh, yeah. Aim for that side of the room. Aim for that. Yeah. Right. Um, <clears throat> and then there's this other thing that we do, you know, usually you have to have some candles and some nice music going, right. Right. Where you focus on your breathing and people call it meditation. And what's really cool is as we dig into this idea of meditation, it's not about the candles and the music and the ambiance. It is about placing your mind on something. And if there's any benefit to meditation, I don't, heck, I don't know. They say that there is, eh, if there's any benefit, then why not do it as we are training. Why not do it? And that can also be one of the things that I have people to define their last rep is when you find that you can no longer keep your mind right here on this muscle, when you find that you want to go, did I leave the light on? Bring it back. And if you can bring it back, that's great. But once it skips out again, let's call it. Right. So that becomes yet another thing that we can use as a way to say, Hey, Let's define this, this last repetition. We know that this thing is over when, that, that, that. 
Okay, so I've got a weird question for you that you just reminded me of because I was listening to Andrew Huberman's podcast this morning on workplace optimization. And there was one thing he brought up because I love like I love white noise and brown noise to help me sleep and relax. Mm -hmm. But he was talking about in this particular episode that there is some data, which I don't have any research on, so I don't want to pretend like I got it. But that some of these particular noises like air conditioning going in a room can really interrupt your brain's thought flow and can be distracting subconsciously. And then you don't realize how stressful it is until that noise is gone. And I'm wondering if if in the world of what we're talking you're talking about you're talking about music and sounds and the environment how much is going into the ears and the sounds of someone here could that influence someone's performance positively or negatively you, you know um it's the the, the research around this is um that is poke a bear no, no, I wouldn't say you poked a bear. It's just, it's just, uh, uh, in some ways, it's problematic to extract to 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 try to pull it to to, to try to um, move it to other contexts, right? Yeah. So, so, so here's the thing. Um, yes, we know that there is something that is very um, uh, that can be very profound about music, right? Um, it can be something that it can be very innocuous in the background, and you don't care about it. It can be something that's there that you really like it and it, 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 it helps you go. And it can also be something that is extremely annoying that won't allow you to do what you need to do, right? right. In terms of brown noise, white noise, all these different frequencies, um, yes, they uh, can set up scenarios where it looks like people are able to focus better in the absence of, of those noisy distractions. Um, but people have also learned how to do just fine with those distractions going on. I will say this though, and this is really interesting. There's a guy named Michael Merzenich. Um, I think he's one of the, yeah, one of the, he, he's, I, I think he's responsible for uh, making plasticity a word that people know. He didn't come up with the term, but I think he's one of the guys who helped to popularize it. But he was talking about research where they showed that um, there are these kids that grew up uh, right along uh, freeways uh, in big cities like New York, where there's a constant hum of cars going by. And he was recognizing that some of these kids who, whose, whose apartments were close enough to the freeway, um, because they were always within earshot of it, it was messing with their, with their uh, ability to develop, to develop speech because it was desensitizing their audio cortices, right? All of this white noise, instead of being able to distinguish these pitches really easily, the, the cortices were exposed to this white noise all the time. And it actually delayed some of their um, speech, uh, their speaking ability, their, their ability to distinguish these different tones. Right. So, and that's, and th now that's not something that lasts into adulthood. Uh, there's a finite time where your when your brain is differentiating in that way. And then once that's done, it's done. But it's interesting that, that our brains do have still some more plasticity as we move forward, but it's nowhere near as sensitive as it was when we were little ones. I love it. I love it. Jacques, I got a totally different question. I want to ask you if you're open yeah. to it, to kind of put a pin in today, I think it'll be a good spot to finish. But before I do, is there anything, I mean, you shared so much wisdom around this defining the last rep. Um, is there mm. anything that we didn't talk about that we should? 
Um, not, I don't, I don't think so. Um, at one point, I would love to, and I'd love to jump in here with uh, with Charlie on this one. Is looking at a uh, if you had a choice, or and and we often do when you're working in a big gym. There's a lat tower with a one to one pulley. Then there's a free motion thing that's got the what four to one thing on it. And then there's another, there's another pulley that has a two to one, right? Yeah. Which one do you choose and why, right? If you got your choice, which one do you choose? And you always, you choose the the same one. And depending on the goal of your client, do you have, do you switch it around? Even if you're able to, to, to dial up a load so that it, that, you know, on the dynamometer, you got the same stuff. Yeah. Mm, That's fine. Yeah. No, and that's exactly what the question I was going to ask you because I know we were chatting about it before. And I think it's such an interesting thing because I think you alluded to that you do have, you've had, you've used different pulleys in different contexts with mm-hmm. different clients, the one to one, two to one, and the four to one. Um, Charlie McMillan, if anyone's unfamiliar with him, you need to go check out his previous episodes in the Spotify podcast stream or even the Fitness Pro Mentors group. But um, when he came, he came out here and did his little pec scale demonstration for the staff at Strata, which was awesome. It was really incredible. And he hooked up the dynamometer to a bunch of different machines like I've done here, but he hooked it up to our four to one Nautilus Freedom Trainer cable machine. And the thing that just blew my mind and we talked about this a little bit in a previous episode was that it was a specific resistance on the way down, which looked pretty accurate to being a four to one. But then when he went back up on the eccentric component or when it was coming back down, um, the resistance dropped by 30%. So it was heavier when we pulled on the concentric side of it. And then it was lighter on the way back down. And that was consistent with most resistances up to about 80 pounds, which I chalked it up to, um, the friction of the pulleys, we, we must be getting a lot more opposition mechanically. Um, but it was still just blew my mind. And that was a four to one. I haven't tried it with their two to one yet. But the pulley stuff, it's just there's so much cool stuff there. Yeah, yeah, there's it's so like you said, so much cool stuff there. And it, it, there's also, um, yeah, just thinking about uh, uh, think about now, also think about a one to two pulley system, though, too, right? Yeah. And when you might actually want that, and I'm not talking about just doing calf raises, yeah. right? <clears throat> so, yeah, there, there's some stuff to unpack in there um, about, uh, yeah, again, what are the goals that your clients have, whether they be athletes or non-athletes um, uh, uh, or people who have really intense jobs like firefighters or lobster fishermen or uh, lumberjacks or, um, you know, you name it. There are certain professions that are going to have to really deal with massive amounts of inertia and wouldn't be cool to have a have a scenario where they get to practice using it very safely i love it i love it i was just talking about this in our study group today that if you're going to try and get someone better in an activity that the inertia and the profiles that of the activity and the exercise we should try to figure out if we can prepare people for that um so creating more weird scenarios that someone may not typically do that it's not a perfect profile it could be really favorable yeah yeah Jacques, I have to say, I am so honored for every moment of your time. I know how busy you are and you got so much on the go with a beautiful family and you got an incredible list of clients. And I'm just, thank you so much for spending a few minutes of your time uh, live with me one-on-one. And yeah, I'm just honored to even know you, man. So thank you so much. Oh man, it's it's a true pleasure. I mean, I um, uh, the feeling is completely mutual. I, I feel like I've known you for a long time and um. Um, I have tremendous respect for you and, and I feel very privileged to be on your podcast. I mean, Hey, if you got, you know, all these heavy hitters coming on here and then there's just me, geez, man, it's, uh, it's, I'm, I'm very humbled by it. 
Well, thank there's, you. there's at least a dozen people live right now that would also call you a heavy hitter as well. So thank <laughs> you so much. Um, so if, if Jacques, anyone that's interested in a handful of weeks, I'll give you a little bit of a teaser. Uh, Jacques, um, Curtis Clay and Michael Goulden and I, we're going to do another bi business biomechanics bonanza. It won't be birthdays. Maybe it's someone's birthday, but not mine. And yeah. we're going to come together and chat again, which is going to be exciting. And I think that that uh, pulley relationship thing you were just talking about might be a great conversation to ask the group. How do they uh -huh. think about using those pulleys and get Curtis and Michael on this? Yes. Yes. It'll be fun. Awesome. And there's a bunch of people here. Uh, McMillan says, thank you, Jacques and Brandon says he is heavy you are heavy and then someone named <laughs> benjamin that i don't know who you are but hello benjamin uh thank you gents so uh um i said charlie charlie thank you so much for chiming in benjamin too <laughs> jock thanks for your time and hope you have a My wonderful pleasure. day oh and check out jock at the exercise design lab and if you haven't signed up for any of his courses you're crazy for not doing it do it right now <laughs> thanks man